the vulnerability landscape is is worse than ever or the researchers are better at finding them than ever hi and welcome to tech news this week i'm your host tech tag editorial news director anton gonsalves on today's show we'll discuss the impact generative ai could have on software development we'll take a look at how the biden administration wants to tighten software security and we'll talk about the need for higher performing storage for AI applications. First is AI and software. The AI natural language processing model called GPT-4 could have a dramatic impact on the development of business software. Here to tell us why is Paul Nashawati, an analyst at Tech Target's Enterprise Strategy Group. So uh, how could uh, AI, the uh, AI language models like GPT-4, you know, change software development? Yeah, Anton, exciting times right now, right? When we're looking at GPT in general, GPT, not to be confused with chat GPT, but GPT overall is the underlying technology, underlying engine that allows, we'll say, call it that, that allows for a lot of things to happen, right? So, so when we look at software development, you can, one can envision, and vendors that I'm speaking with can envision use cases such as customer support enhancements, such as roadmap generation, such as dynamic bug fixes, QA testing, uh, you know, and how that would work. Also dynamic infrastructure, right? So like all these areas where you see changes that are happening across the ecosystem, um, where software needs to be improved, you don't want to have to wait for things to happen. You can actually have these underlying engine to dynamically start making changes to the software packages so you can have things happen uh, more dynamically across the board. Now, in an article you written, you talked about uh, the, that GPT-4 could have an impact on customer support, for example. Uh, can you uh, elaborate on that a little bit? Oh, absolutely, Antoine. So I mentioned customer support as a, as a use case. So like, if you think about it, Today, a lot of times when you go to a, a site or go to a, a vendor uh, site and you say, hey, I'm, I need some help, and you get a chat bot that pops up, and they give you some limited responses, and that's, and that's okay, right? That's okay. But when you start incorporating an internal instantiation of GPT, and the reason why I make that distinction, internal instantiation, is because we don't want to... We want to be careful that organizations and, and companies and such, everyone, is not putting... Uh, proprietary information in a general public domain, uh, like like a chat GPT. You don't want to put that information out there because then it goes into the public and then becomes public domain. That's a bad thing, right? But if you have an internal instantiation of GPT that's running um, for your knowledge base, you could take that envision taking that chat bot and really making it where it's dynamically learning that knowledge base and analyzing problems in the, in the application stack. And really the goal is to help delight customers by providing that rapid response and also do predictive problem solving. So you can see how that would be a, a good tie together for that customer experience. Sure, and, and you've also talked about greater <coughs> level human-machine collaboration. Uh, what, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you look at shifting, of resources. IT, for example, is being asked to do far more now than they did in just two years ago. According to our enterprise strategy group research, we're seeing that IT is tasked with doing far more now than they were with the same or fewer resources than they had just two years ago. So a lot of, a lot of challenges here. So when we look at GPT and the use case of automation, 
and we look at how GPT can be used, we could look at shift in skill, skill staff or still skill res, skilled resources, right? So you could basically take those uh, kind of tedious tasks that you have maybe a, maybe a resource doing today and really shift that uh, those tedious tasks to more automated and shift the high value resources to innovative projects rather than focus on the low value, low return projects. So that's one example. There's another example of using, uh, you know, focus that human uh, collaboration, understanding the business focus and adjustments. So by understanding the competitive landscape and monitoring and viewing the day-to-day -day changes, you know, across the industry, that really helps provide organizations with the proper insights to adjust the business models, really to stay ahead of the competitive landscape, right? And, and traditional approaches usually requires human capital to uh, to to do this research, it's also error prone due to miss you know misinformation across the ever changing landscape. So those are just two examples, but you can see how you know utilizing uh, GPT to uh, do staff augmentation, skill augmentation, or just using it for uh, task uh, management. It's it's a good vehicle to enhance that automation process that businesses may not be doing today. All right, back in March, uh, the Biden administration unveiled plans uh, to hold vendors and software publishers accountable for the security flaws in their products. The administration uh, argues that too many vendors ignore best practices for secure software development. Uh, here to tell us what the cybersecurity industry thinks of the proposal is Tech Target editorial security reporter Alex Kalafi. So tell us uh, why the administration is proposing this now. You know, after all, software with security holes has been around for decades. The Biden administration, as you said, back in March, unveiled their national cybersecurity strategy. It includes a bunch of things. It's like a 40-page document, maybe 39 pages. And uh, one section, the, the section that I found the most interesting was Strategic Objective 3.3, which is dedicated to software vulnerabilities and the idea that the people who are hurt most when there are severe software vulnerabilities are the end users uh, and yet vendors software publishers don't really face many or in any case in most cases any legal consequences whatsoever like there's the case of uber when like a breach was covered up but for the most part like if you're publishing popular software and you have a bunch of vulnerabilities and some vendors as we know have hundreds of vulnerabilities a year uh, they don't really face consequences for that so the biden administration is arguing that there should be some legal consequence for vendors that aren't following best practices now they aren't very specific about what those are other than that they would like to pass legislation and they also said that there would be some safe harbor frameworks so that uh, folks who are following software development best practices aren't going to be punished for doing the best because doing their best because software development's hard vulnerabilities are an inevitable fact of life but uh, mm -hmm. to actually answer your question there are more software vulnerabilities every year the bar of entry for threat actors to exploit flaws is uh, lower than ever and i think while I don't know if some legislation will actually come to pass, I think it's really interesting that they're pushing for it now because, you know, the, the vulnerability landscape is, is worse than ever or the researchers are better at finding them than ever. Yeah, but now it's, it is critical that 
that Congress work in collaboration with the administration, right? Because they're the ones who would pass actual laws and penalties and fill in the details, correct? That's correct, right? This is not just something the administration can do on its own. No, no, no. This would be an executive order. And, and, but I, but that said, I'm not optimistic about the current Congress's odds to pass legislation that could prove controversial and in the way it could impact businesses doing business, right? Not to get political, but uh, it is very hard to get laws passed in the current state of legislature in the United States. And right. so I think for that reason, something that's even mildly controversial like this. I have my doubts about whether something would actually get passed in the near future. Okay. Well, what's the cybersecurity industry's um, uh, response to what the administration is proposing, or what it would like to, uh, to do? So the reason we're talking today is for the last few weeks, I have been talking to vendors and security researchers to get an idea of how folks are feeling about these ideas now that the dust has sort of settled a bit. And I'm actually surprised. People were more open and willing to talk about it than I expected. I thought that when I talked to people, PR was going to be like, oh, no, no, no. Uh, we, this is a little off scope. You, you know how, how they can be sometimes. But people were very open to, to their credit talking about this. And the reaction was generally positive. I think people were very happy that the conversation was getting started about sort of taking the onus for vulnerabilities off the end user and on to the vendor more. I think some people disagree whether it should have started in legislature. And I think a lot of people are worried about what implementation would look like. Not even that it would be too strict or anything, but whether something resembling impl implementation could even occur right now. So people were positive. A few people were even bullish, I would say. But the other emotion that I did see was, uh, we'll see if something like this actually happens. Yeah, I mean, but the, the bottom line here for business is that this adds uh, a certain amount of uncertainty right now. And, uh, and business is not like uncertainty. You know, it's hard to operate no. in conditions. All right, finally, the large language models that drive generative AI uh, need high-performance uh, computing. So there's an obvious uh, need for faster and better CPUs and, uh, and GPUs. But what about storage? Uh, how are the storage vendors uh, serving the companies running generative AI? Uh, here to tell us is Tech Target editorial storage reporter, Adam Armstrong. All right, so, uh, so what are the storage vendors uh, selling for generative AI infrastructure? Interestingly, they don't have any new products yet. The, the... Yeah, storage infrastructure and architecture for high performance computing kind of fits generative AI like a glove. So far, that's what they've been using the, the scale out uh, parallel file systems, scale out NAS. Uh, another thing they're using it, the large language model sits on the storage and gets loaded to the memory, then it gets processed in the compute, either the GPU or CPU. So they need storage with high IOPS to feed the memory. So flash storage fits that bill. Uh, flash storage, the NVMe flash, the PCA Gen 4 is pretty fast. And that right now is what they're using. And there's going to be some, uh, they are talking about doing something with memory, right? Tweaking memory so that it could get higher performance in storage for generative AI. Because as we know, these large language models require speed in just about every part of the infrastructure. 
Yeah, the, the natural evolution of storage technology is to get denser and faster, both of which will play into generative AI. The large language models will get more complex and therefore larger, and they will need to load them faster. So the, the, the storage itself will get faster over time, which fits in this. With memory, memory is constrained right now because A, it's expensive, and, and B, it's just very small. Uh, it's hard to really scale it up. But there are advancements coming, like the CXL protocol, which can open up uh, memory much, much larger. Yeah, it's good that you mentioned CXL, which stands for Computer Express, Express Link Interface. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. What, what is it and what will it do? Uh, CXL does a lot of things. Uh, it's, a, it's a protocol that goes from the CPU to memory, mainly. But from the storage perspective and upcoming advancements, it will be able to, it will allow people to pull memory together regardless of uh, its generation. So it could be the current DDR5 generation memory or older ones, DDR3 or 4. Another thing it does is it can look at storage as though it's memory. Now, this won't increase the speed of memory, but you can still tear it off. So if you need a lot of memory, instead of spending millions of dollars for terabytes of memory, you can throw storage into the mix, get the cost down, and, and you can tier it in a way that you can still use the memory in, in a fast way for generative AI. And you also wrote about a company, create Crater Labs, uh, and the storage system that it's using to run generative AI. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Crater Labs? For the generative AI part, what they did, or what they told me as an example, was that they, they generate images similar to what you would see with DALI, but a little more specific. In the example given, they were working for a nuclear power plant and they were looking at specific welds and specific uh, small specific parts. And in those cases, you can't have any defects. So immediately they have really low defects and Crater Labs would go in and generate terabytes worth of images. So thousands or hundreds of thousands of images to get the minimal amount of defects possible. And to do this, they used pure storage Flashblade, which is not a parallel file system, but it's a, it's a scale-out NAS system. So on pure, they had it on-prem for its speed. You don't have to deal with the latency of going back and forth with the cloud. But they would also use pure's built-in object storage to, to for like the bulk of the images they generated they weren't using. They would just tear off to the cloud. All right, that wraps up this week's show. Thanks for watching and enjoy the weekend.